Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this morning? David, the uh, the thunderstorms of, of late have, t- have taken a break. I have to say that I hope we've seen the last of them for a little bit. Last night was so intense. It was just... There's absolutely no way that people, anyone witnessing that, could avoid the states of pure wonder and dread or doom. You know, it's just, there's no doubt about that. But uh, I think the sheer intensity of, of the, the pyrotechnics and the whole just drama uh, is a little bit more than the, the, the being can bear night after night after night. Um, and uh, I did, it has helped me though, uh, you know, we, we give you a, a set of five words every uh, episode from which to choose two. Uh, I'm loving some new words, and here's my new word of the week. I think it's fantastic. Lucifuge. A lucifuge, you know, like Lucifer, but fuge, you know, centrifuge. We, you know, put those together. A lucifuge is one who flees the light or fire. And uh, after last night's uh, amazing uh, clash of the gods and demons in this, I mean, it's just the whole mountains around me have lit up. Like, mm-hmm. and they're still impressed in in the in like my rods and cones. I'm seeing after flashes, and you know, it's just it's that intense. So I may be a lucifuge for a while. One who flees the light or fire. I've got a couple new favorite words as well. I've been working my way through Henri Corbin's History of Islamic Philosophy, and uh, <clears throat> I like the word ta will which is to, to lead, lead something back to its archetype. And similarly, epistrophe. Epistrophe with an E. Mm-hmm. To return through, through likeness. I like those words. There is a connection between those. Those are very interesting. I like that too. Mm-hmm. I like that. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of these great words that are just... Uh, and they, they have a kind of... Uh, well, a similar sort of origin point in history. I've come across in, uh, and I'll, we'll talk about sort of the reading that I've done, but Avitternal, A-E-V-I-T-E-R-N-A-L, is the re- existing midway between time and eternity. It's the realm hmm. of angels, saints, and planets in medieval uh, astrology and alchemical thinking, um, but I like that midway between time and eternity. You know, we th- we don't often think about the connection between time and eternity. We think of eternity as kind of an extension of time. No, time has an end, <coughs> and I, and this is right. what it is. So um, that's awesome. I've also been reading uh, James Hillman's The Dream and the Underworld, and that has affected my dream world i've been keeping records now like you and last night you know i woke up this morning in a pretty good mood considering but last night i hung out with the dead all night long wow dead dead people who i knew um and 
I remember some of the things that we talked about, mostly because I wrote them down. It was all very simple, mundane. I don't feel as though I brought anything of real consequence back, but Hillman's uh, book is fascinating to me. It's the, uh, to Hillman, there is no difference between dreams and, well, the underworld. Mm-hmm. To him, dreams are directly uh, death, and he states his intentions with that book as uh, creating a bridge downward and a bridge inward within the self to connect to this uh, world. Because in, in his reckoning, we're dealing with uh, we're dealing with death every night and every day, and there's death all around us, which is suitably gothic for my aesthetic preferences, but also uh, really fascinating and true. It has an air of truthiness about it. And whenever I catch a scent, uh, you know, I've, I've went, I did deep dives on uh, Carl Gustav Jung, uh, but I've never encountered Hillman or Corban before, and uh, their their flavor of mysticism is, is hitting my sweet spot, so Interesting. I'm enjoying myself. Cool, cool. That's, and it's interesting to hit that in summertime. They, that uh, sounds a little bit more like a, you know... Uh, Autumnal. Uh, yeah, and heading into winter sort of thinking, but I think that's cool. Excellent, excellent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, before we get into the episode proper, there are three things we have to go over. First is your band that you've invented, and then an aphorism that you have written for us. Yep, and then your imaginative challenge. Well, this the band this time... Uh, <coughs> They're called the Six Simple Machines. Uh, and of course, there are only five members in the band. But I like that idea of the Six Simple Machines. I, I think those are really, really, uh, that's a cool idea. But the thing is that they, uh, they really do have a background in uh, some like ancient Chinese, and ancient Indian, and ancient African music. Uh, some really strange instrumentation, but they put all of that aside and completely improvise and invent and manufacture their own instruments, a la Harry Parch and Captain B. Part. And some of the things are just, they're really just junkyard. They're complete outsider artists who refuse to draw on any of their music school, like Berkeley or Juilliard School of Music training, their knowledge of ancient instruments, they're just, they've entirely put that aside and are effectively reinventing music for themselves from uh, a kind of childlike point of view, you know? A kind of brutal innocence point of view. And I, I really, I, I think that, uh, you know, you can do that when you get into like uh, today's synthesizers and, and things, and you can start, you know, fooling around, creating, you know, relatively pleasant sounds with no real understanding of, of the tonics, of the, the range, of, of any of the, the music physics involved, let alone the art of, of music theory and construction. And then you think, well, wait a minute, is that the goal? It is pleasant sound. You know, once you start to interrogate that idea from a really serious aesthetic point of view, 
uh, not just a, a have a punk having fun, you know, trashing, you know, the drums kit, you know, because um, that's cool. That that was a good thing, but this is mm-hmm. more the idea of like, well, what does it really mean to to turn sound into music? And I kind of dig that. I think that you're uh, will be seeing, you know, that sounds like it's already in progress with Gus. And mm-hmm. I think I wish the more people growing up were allowed to do that, to experiment and find their way to music, rather than have the notion that of what music is so heavily dictated. You know, when Gus wakes up in the morning, he makes his way over to three different musical instruments. He's got a piano. He's got a light up spinning top that plays music. And he's got a table, a learning table, that teaches him Spanish and counting, but also plays songs. And what he does every morning is he begins to press different keys and different songs. And sometimes he has all three going at once. And he'll look back at me and he'll be like, this is good shit, right? This is really good. And I, I say, son, I don't know what you're hearing, but I'm glad that you're enjoying yourself. Uh, but to your point, he's hearing something. There's something going on there. He hasn't quite learned what quote unquote good music is yet. So he just he's digging the sounds, man. Yeah. Well, I hope he doesn't get too sure too quickly. You know, I think that's the thing. I mean, I don't think we need to be. Uh, you know, the thing about the arts is we don't need to be too clear on what's good too fast. We can always leave that question open, you know, as long as we don't, you know, discard things wholesale. Uh, just, you know, keep thinking, well, is that good? And why do I think that? And who told me? Is that my own idea? You know, all those kinds of things. Um, that's really cool. I, I really want a learning table. I think we all need a learning table. And we should have as many different sources of input from that. And, and in a sense, that's what a good office is, isn't it? You know, you got a Kindle loaded with, you know, all of, you know, I've got 3,000 years, not hours, 3,000 years of estimated reading time loaded into my Kindle. Can you believe that? Yeah, um, I can. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, there's just all of these great resources. So people, I guess, have got to stay really upbeat and positive and not let the, the bad energy uh, overcome us. Um, That's the vibe I'm on. That's the vibe I'm trying to get on. I've yeah. been trying to just not complain yeah. about anything. I complained a lot during uh, COVID, which I've, I found to be one of the most annoying illnesses. Not intense, not life-threatening in my case, but annoying illnesses. And <clears throat> I was just complaining. I would cough, and I'd be like, God damn it. Or, uh, you know, I would... I don't know, sometimes get a little bit nauseous, a little bit of stomach trouble. And I think, well, this sucks. And I've been, uh, now that we're, we're all COVID-free here, I'm flushing that impulse away because it's not, it's just not helpful. Complaining is just, it's a waste of time. Totally. And I'm, I'm really hyped on, you know, how much learning I've been doing. I Windexed my windows today. I did a load of laundry. Gus and I went on a beautiful walk uh, around the neighborhood before it got too hot. 
and we came back to the house and read uh, he's obsessed with this Sesame Street book where they're they're all playing instruments you can sense a theme with the boy he's very musically orientated anyhow <clears throat> a day like that and a day that you know I get to talk to you and then once we're done Gus will wake up and we'll play more until his mother comes home and then I have a, an entire evening of reading and writing and studying which is are three things that I love to do like what do I have to complain about there's there's nothing left to complain about right right well it it's a it's a disease you know it's a disease of, of the mind and it uh, there's a lot of encouragement in our culture to to complain a lot of friendships are uh, really basically mutual complaint societies they're just people you know, uh, bemoaning back and forth. You listen to X, and then it's your turn to go, and that's what a lot of the whole thing is about. So, it's it's very uh, it's very difficult to break these little habits. Um, you know, it's like the uh, the chips with uh, ranch dressing that we were talking about off mic before. It's little, yeah. you know, complaining is a is a kind of a hit. You know. Right, it lights right. up certain circuits in the brain. But um, uh, okay, to get, uh, I'll I'll do my uh, my aphorism here, and uh, I, I came up with one which I think is absolutely fine, and I was just going to let that out there. But I thought, and it's you are an invention of your nervous system, and I thought okay, but that's a lot. You know, I don't know something about that. I didn't I didn't think that was up to our standards. And so I gave it a, a little moment's thought. And then I came up with this. Perception begins with making wonder in collaboration with the world. And I felt much better about that. I'm writing it down. Perception begins with making wonder in collaboration that is great. Yeah, I like that. I'm, I'm uh, attempting to keep. I know you keep records of this, obviously, but I'm trying to. I'm trying to externalize thought and ideas as much as possible. I tweeted this the other day, and I was half joking, half serious, which was that I no longer want to have thoughts unless I'm performing them in the context of a conversation like this one, or writing them <clears throat> through my hand. Because the, the, the flow of these ideas needs to, they need an uh, escape vector, essentially. And I, I'm beginning to suspect that things like ambient anxiety and OCD are at least in part caused by not, not twisting the release valve on your own thoughts. And it's it's great. It's you know one of the most you know go to human practices that we have to to put what's in your head into an external brain. In this case, my notebook. And you know, I've been I'm not a great artist, but I've been drawing picture. I showed you a page yeah, from it yeah. the other day. <coughs> it's just it's fan, it's a great way to. It's such a simple thing, but you know, I have uh, here. Uh, things to follow up on from the readings that I've been doing 
uh, you know, it says James Hillman transforming the abnormal into normal through the stories of Ananke and Athena. And I'm like, okay, that's not in this book, but that sounds interesting, so I'm going to look that up. Um, anyway, just little clues to myself and and thoughts. Um, I know it's been a theme of the show for the past three or four months now, but journaling uh, changed my whole life. It, it, it can't be overstated. Well, I think that uh, in this episode, we'll put this into a larger cultural frame because I, I, I absolutely have found this to be the case too. And I think that uh, what we'll be able to do is perhaps even uh, put a polish to the articulation on why this is true. And also, what if, if one is capable of that kind of visualization, <coughs> articulation, and performance, what the implications are for knowledge, thought, contemplation, psychic experience that doesn't reach that threshold, you know? That that's a problem. That that becomes an issue. So there's some really cool things to talk about there. Um, but here's your imaginative challenge for the the week. All right, let's go. I take it you're familiar with the Turing test. Yes. Uh, which is, I mean, what a great genius. He he really raised some interesting thoughts and a very eccentric sort of character. Well, uh, in a similar vein, John Searle raised the thought experiment of the Chinese room, which is an argument against strong AI. Uh, it's that, yeah, you can pass the Turing test, but not really get to a point where you can say that a system is programmably sentient uh, in that way. Um, so that's a reference point. And then there's The Truman Show, the, the Peter Weir movie with uh, Jim Carrey, which is kind of a ripoff of some really great ideas by Philip K. Dick and, and others. So those are your three, three references. The Turing Test, The Chinese Room, which I think most listeners of this would be familiar with. Um, if not, uh, rather than summarize it, uh, do some research because it's a really interesting idea uh, and then the Truman Show but if, if you do understand those three constellation points you'll notice uh, something similar okay well what your challenge for this time is the three tweets that tipped off Dominic Novardi for interest's sake I don't know why that name occurred to me but he's the subject of our experiment. Three tweets, okay? He ends up, I'll tell you where he ends up, he ends up thinking that he is the subject of a really twisted psychological experiment and that none of the social media he, he, engagements that he's had are real at all. He thinks that he, he develops a completely paranoid position that uh, everything that he's been involved with is targeted at him, uh, it is under some sort of larger control, and may be not human. It may be, he may have been dealing with artificial intelligences the whole time. So that's his end, end point, right? And you have three tweets to share with us that 
show the arc of the relationship. The first tweet lures him into this social media network. The second tweet he's starting to get suspicious. And the third tweet that he gets, or engagement, they can be, you know, whatever you have the time for, he's convinced that he's, he's a sucker, that he is a, a little uh, fly in a big web. He is part mm -hmm. of some devious experiment. He's gone total paranoia. Okay? Okay. So three tweets that are uh, supposed to gradually indicate that this guy is dealing with an, a non-human intelligence, specifically an artificial intelligence. Exactly. And gradual is the key thing. This is one of the... the uh, I'm, I'm back um, I'm gonna be back teaching this fall, just one class. And, and graduality, uh, the gradient experience, the, the, you know, the releasing of so much rope, the pouring of so much fluid, you know, that kind of management is so important, I think, not just in writing, but in terms of our thinking, too, because, you know, that's how things actually happen if we're really, you know, paying attention. Suddenness is uh, more uh, a factor of our attention rather than a factor of what's really going on. So, yeah, that what, time release what thing. Is, what is his name again? Sorry? Dominic Novardi. I don't know why. I've been reading Giordano Bruno and quite a, and Nicholas Cusa and quite a few um, Italianate names, so maybe so that you has a factor. Given him an Italian name. Okay, okay, but this is a completely fictional yeah. scenario. Yeah, okay. but the, the, the key thing you, you got <laughs> onto is that there is a, uh, at the end, the penny has dropped for rightly or wrongly, and he's made, he's drawn a conclusion. But it's these, it's the process, the suspicion. We're, we're, it's the anatomy of suspicion. That's a good way to think mm -hmm. of it. Okay, all right. Okay, sounds good. Oh, nice. I'll, I'll, I'll have that program running in the background. Okay. All right, so, today, uh, I know you had several ideas of things that you wanted to talk about. You mentioned the need for the feed, which I liked. Um, where would you like to go for this episode? I thought we might kind of... Um, well, the need for the feed touches on uh, some issues that you've raised about the 24-7... Uh, constant keeping up with information and the notion of the history making machine which we've talked about and the question of whether or not that there's any capacity to, to control that because if as, as we often hear history is a social construct uh, people might be familiar with you know history is what the victors end up writing which is a very strange idea because I don't think people in the military really do write history um, I'm not sure what, what any of those things mean. Um, but before we get to kind of the current obsessions and either this notion of being in control of the media and the history-making machine of our particular moment, our era, I think we should maybe go back to um, 
a more traditional, and that's a wonderful word which I want to investigate, traditional notion of history that has brought us to this point and connects to the question of whether or not history can continue as we've known it. We've, we, we've dealt with that in the last couple of episodes. Can, is, is history possible in the future? Which I think is a lovely idea. Um, you know, from without having you know a, a, a post-apocalyptic frame on that, is history possible right now? Is what we're asking. Is iconography possible? Uh, and my my way to that is to connect back to a, another really important point that we've raised is value and values. In last episode, we were talking about value and values. Uh, really relative, very specific, you know, in terms of money and commerce. So maybe we could bring a few of these streams of history, values, value, commerce, iconography, the possibility of history, bring that to uh, a point of horizon rather than closure, and then think about the need for the feed and, and where that leaves us uh, for next time and for future development. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds like a plan to me. Okay. Well, I, um, I know that, that, that you're familiar with Giordano Bruno, um, a, a really crucial, um, perhaps maybe the emblematic Renaissance magus proto-scientist uh, someone who's a link between the worlds on, on multiple levels. Um, finally executed for uh, heresy, none of which involved magic, by the way, um, in 1600 in the field of flowers in Rome. Uh, but he is an intellectual crossroads, if nothing else. And so I started going a deep dive of his works, and there's, there's quite a bit of beautiful scholarship. We've mentioned Francis uh, B. Yates, who's a historian that we love, who's written about his, his memory systems, for, which he's probably the most famous for. Um, but there's really all of his work is now a, available in scholarly translation, and they're quite well done. And they're, they're really, they're, they're important in the history of, of intellectual uh, thought, if nothing else. Um, a lot of the, the proto-science, you could say as well, that's not really relevant anymore, but um, I think it is, absolutely is, because it, it, we wouldn't have gotten to where we are without earlier uh, paradigms and theories. But looking through his work, and I, I, I it's just, you know, the names uh, pop up. You know, uh, Parimenides, Pythagoras, Plato and Aristotle, of course, but Empedocles, for God's sakes, what a crazy character he was. Uh, Lucan, the, the uh, Roman poet, Agrippa, uh, Ficino, Plotinus, and of course uh, Ramon Lull, uh, a major figure who uh, came up with some very interesting ideas. Uh, maybe one of the fathers of computation, uh, certainly one of the leading um, advocates for incredible linguistic fluency that thought really begins with fluency in many languages. And think of all the languages that were around Europe then. 
Um, so Lowell, and anyone who's, who has four L's in their name, I think is really cool. So Bruno is, 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 is really um, keeping alive these names, these thoughts. And that sort of began to resonate around me for a little bit. And I, I thought, you know, here's a question for, for you directly. Imagine being so devoted to a thinker or writer as to copy out word for word one or several of their works, you know, cherishing these words and sharing them, but very, very selectively. You know, I mean, when I started thinking about we we, we really, really uh, overestimate the whole book production idea and the printing press and the availability of texts. And we also greatly underestimate the problems of, of heresy. And that could come up from any number of points of view. And social media shaming today. Well, you piss off a certain nobleman, and and you're you're not just finished on a platform. You're on a platform about to be lit on fire potentially. We we have no idea how intense, really, the 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 birth and growth and evolution of knowledge in Europe. We, we, the idea of attacking Western civilization, which is now high on many people's agenda, I think that makes me so violently ill, I don't know if I could confront anyone with that position in real life, face to face. I think it's, it's absolutely untenable. Um, but what I came to is and this is my uh, hinge point to turn back to you. The great value of this educational tradition, and tradition, tradere in the Latin is very, very interesting. It means both to deliver and to betray. Think about that. To deliver or betray. That gets to the heart of, of tradition, tradere in Latin. And this is what's going on with this. Are you delivering this trove of learning which has survived against tremendous odds, or are you betraying it? And I realize that, that the, the verb is not to value, it's to treasure. The treasuring of this information. Sure, there's, there's you know, quotations made uh, by people like Bruno, and, and it was something that all of these authors did. They're trying to show off a little bit, yeah. They're trying to demonstrate ethos and the sense of credibility and their knowledge of a subject. But they're also s celebrating reassurance of, of having some company, you know, of having some connection with people and being part of a tradition, working in a tradition. And, as I'll say it again, you got two choices, to deliver or betray. That's what the notion of a tradition is. So we've somehow lost this, this sense of treasuring, you know? 
having a mm -hmm. book. My God, not everybody had a book. And, and the question right. of what went in a book, I mean, committing that to writing, that was like a desperate, hopeful, dangerous, magical act by definition, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, mm -hmm. now everybody's self-publishing and we've got everyone, it's just like, oh, okay, okay, we get it, you know? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. don't forget where this all started, you know? And, and the choice remains. The, the crossroads has not changed. You're either delivering or you're betraying. I like that. And I like this ties into your band and the idea of sounds that might not necessarily sound good but might be interesting because when you are thinking about it in terms of books <clears throat> specifically the just rapid proliferation of junk that's been put out there uh, you'll often get an argument from people and that argument will be well why can't people just enjoy things and I like this delineation between the idea of enjoying something and treasuring it those have two different feelings to me one of them is disposable it has the ability to be printed rapidly read quickly understood completely and then tossed away ultimately but something that you treasure i'm thinking of a book that i have it's this beautiful well it's the red book it's carl jung's red book which yeah. is printed out like like a bible and it feels uh it actually in fact it feels more mysterious and mystical than the contents of the one that i because i don't have the illustrated oh I do, yeah yeah you got it yeah it's worth at some point spring for those because it becomes this enormous thing that's very difficult you have to really uh dedicate some time to read because if you if it if it's the one i've got it's a big big book but the illustrations right. are so psychotic and you really get it i mean he was quite an interesting artist and in your i think this so yeah look into a very very weird mind but i think that's an excellent example of a truly uh magical text that was intentionally magical you know and the question is when you flip through that are you enjoying yourself 100 percent of the time probably not there are moments of enjoyment to be had but it's the concept of exercise mental exercise having a balance between these two things everything has to be candy it has to be the ranch chips it's got to be easily digestible and something like Jung's book or the the Corban book that I'm reading there are times where I'm gonna be honest I'm a little bored I'm kind of bored t to tears at, at certain ports certain points especially in the Corban book when he just seems to be listing all of these uh, you know Arabic and Persian names uh, I'm like, man, I'm not going to remember this and I don't care. But you you push through it and you find that you treasure the... Exp like, let me stop for a second and actually just think about like what comes to mind with treasure, like buried treasure. You have to dig for it or you have to scuba dive for it. It's in a shipwreck somewhere. Are you having fun 100% of the time that you're you know, digging that shovel in? It, you know, it might not even be there. 
No, of course not. Right? It's a it's a it's a process. Something that's treasured is something that is uh, worked for, which speaks to your point about how books used to be, both in their production and their acquisition. I mean, to have a book at the time of Giordano Bruno, which fun fact, it is believed that a second book of his, or perhaps a third, I can't remember how many he's written now, but there was an entire occult book in his head at the time of his death that he never put down on paper because, well, he thought they might burn him alive for it. Turns out they got him on, uh, it was the, it was uh, universes, right? That, that we're in a galaxy and that there are, the stars are other suns. That was his... That was yeah, his big idea he, that got him axed. Well, he really pissed off one particular right. person. Uh, right. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. He he was he was always running his and the, the uh, he would have been executed several times over, but he had the right friends until he no longer had the right friend anymore. Um, but yeah, I uh, well that was kind of lengthy, and I know I, I said a lot, but there's a there's a very specific connection here between effort and singularity and the object the book as sacred object sacred very specifically uh, using that that sacrificial uh, connection right right well here's what uh because this this whole return to uh, and it's not just uh, Bruno because he is part of this enormous tradition which is really um, which underlies the possibilities of of science as we know it the whole possibility of the Enlightenment I mean we wouldn't have had the Enlightenment so called if we hadn't had the Renaissance and it's kind of worth checking out what the what the Renaissance meant in terms of these thinkers. And as I was, you know, it, it is easy to get sort of hypnotized by some of these principles that seem, well, we've just moved beyond them. Uh, there are paradigms in place. Uh, for instance, the humors, you know, that understanding of, of, of medicine uh, and the functioning of the human body. And isn't it odd that you and I have talked about how we've kind of returned to those in a certain way? That the humerus has no basis in really in, in medical treatment. You would never sort of, uh, a doctor wouldn't talk about that literally. And yet, we do think about that. And there are some things that are, I mean, I know some people who do have melancholic or phlegmatic uh, personalities, demeanors. Uh, I mean, it seems to have an enormous amount of utility, actually. Um, but I, I just whizzed through a kind of a summary of what is underlying uh, Bruno and an entire sort of pre-science tradition of uh, intellectual humanism. And I think it begins with a certain and yet peculiar, inherently alchemical approach to engaging with order. Order. That's the really, that's a peculiar, they had a peculiar angle on order, which is different than the Chinese and the Indians and the Mesopotamians, but is drawn, there's a link on that. That is, that's not an, an obvious idea when you think about it. 
um, order. What does that really mean and how does that break down? Well, the practice of it then goes through secrecy as point of entry, but also as proof of concept and connection. Secrecy could also be credential. You know, are you able to understand this? You know, uh, mm -hmm. we that ex that becomes demeaning and diminished in in the form of university uh, certification. It used to be something more interesting. Uh, secondly, an astonishingly astute realization or merger of the 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 needs to play the need to play within the bounds of religion. Mm -hmm. as in fear of heresy, but also just right. sheer appreciation of the complexity of, of the subject, the order in the world. And here's, I came up with a really cool new word, the perfect chimeraization, you know, a chimera, but mm -hmm. hybridizing of magic, religion, and science. Because they were, they were part of all those traditions. They weren't just afraid of heresy in the sense of getting you know, their head chopped off or sitting on something far. They actually believed in these things. You know? There was a real uh, attempt to synthesize these various systems of, of understanding. Um, the powerful sense of hierarchy is next. The great chain of being, the levels of angels, I mean, if you want to really uh, point any particular critical finger at the thinking of Europe, it and it's and they're not completely free. I mean, the, the Chinese and the Indians follow this too. I mean, look at the crazy sort of levels of of, of uh, the Hindu beliefs, but the sense of hierarchy, which of course mirrors the obsession with social hierarchies in terms of royalty. And I did make a note here. Flag royalty for David as a future topic, something we may have not taken seriously enough. So I'll just <laughs> throw that in there. Um, but here, this gets to what we started with talking about your journaling. Number and symbol magic. Lillian wheels, as in Ramon Lull, Vavel's. Mm -hmm. Check out Vavel. These are all beautiful ideas. They're ways to visualize and to present information, astronomical, astrological, spiritual, alchemical, Jungian. Uh, all of okay, this. Okay, I got, I got, I got Lillian wheels. What was the second? Sorry to interrupt. Vavel's. V o v e l l e s. It's a beautiful design form. Anything could be presented in this. They, they have geographical map significance, but there is this absolute driving fascination in, with number and symbol magic moving to the visual, to the tactile, to the dimensional, to the performative. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. this is one of the, the absolute unifying points across all these kinds of thinkers. And your uh, when you sent, I was just reading this, reminding this when you sent through the the the, uh, the page from your journal, which is a beautiful uh, Ramon Lull, Giordano Bruno magical uh, diagrammatic dissection of OCD, and uh, it was just the timing was perfect, and I thought this is what we're talking about: this driving need to. Uh, create a visualized framework for understanding. Uh, right. 
which is the essence of the entire uh, Western magical scientific notion of understanding. You know, mm -hmm. that is, mm -hmm. and it, there is a point where, and many, many great thinkers have talked about this, particularly mathematicians, an almost uh, demonic sense of uh, either possession or complete abandonment when they were just on the edge of an idea, but they couldn't visualize it yet. They couldn't, they didn't have the equation in, in frame. They didn't have the model, and it was driving them nuts. And mm -hmm. I think there is that sense of like what can't be journaled, what can't be articulated, what can't at least have the potential, the magical potential for sharing with someone else in the form of a diagram or a sketch or a map, you know? Right, you, right, right. That's enough. That is the, that is the hell. That is an actual hell for people who are thinking in this tradition, who are part of this magical knowledge tradition. That's what mm -hmm. is, the, is hell, is to be just on the edge, but not have it quite in hand, you know? Right, and it becomes even harder these days because you know the phrase, if you're not paying for it, you are the product, which yeah. is usually used in terms of social media. Well, that holds true for uh, things like Twitter and social media in terms of, you know, they're doing the thinking for you. If you are constantly absorbing the, their products, their magic, well, where's the time for you to do your own? And I think you might be hitting on one of the key psychic defense mechanisms for our age, which is that if you don't, <clears throat> if you don't externalize your thoughts in terms of these diagrams, pictures, sigils, words, if you're not uh, actively creating your own magical scientific uh, uh, world, through the act of journaling or performance or some combination of both. Instead, you have a, a kind of a, a simulacrum of that that you've adopted wholesale from other people. And those other people only want your money. They just want to take, they want to extract things from you. So you're, you're kind of at the psychic mercy of these, uh, of these powerful wizards. Somebody like Edward Bernays was had to have been an occultist right mm -hmm. uh, he, 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 he understood this and changed the whole world because of it and um, so so this is a really really compelling idea essentially if you don't instead of you know if, if you're not paying for it you're the you're the product it's like if you're not if you're not worlding then you're being absorbed into another orbit another world that is very, very well said, and it is a direct echo of William Blake and his basic point that linked all of his poetics, all of his visual art, his paintings, engravings, all of that. That is a beautiful way to put things, what you've just said. If you are not creating your own magical world and system, 
you are inherently victimized and a puppet within someone else's. You know, there's no, there's no other, there's no middle ground here. You know, that is the the there, psychic defense is not an option. You know, it really isn't in that sense. That that is very beautifully said, David. You you've you've brought I think a lot of, and all it brings together a whole tradition. That's really what. Uh, these individual luminous thinkers throughout uh, history and really have given us our sense of history in, in a crucial way. That was really their whole point all along. So there is a tradition, there's an arc of story uh, here. Um, mm-hmm. So, and here are the... Yeah? So, sorry, one, one, one more point to that. I often, I would often hear... Uh, we've talked on this show before of people who are afflicted with TDS or Trump derangement syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I cannot remember who initially said this. This is not a David original, but uh, they said that, you know, Trump is actually one of the best magicians of our age because of his ability to create a center of gravity around himself. So if you want an example of what Chris and I are talking about, look at people who are suffering from TDS. And I will. I would bet you $500 if you found one of these people who was a friend. I'll bet you they don't have a journaling practice. I'll bet you they don't make anything. They're just completely consumed with another man's world. They're in it, and they're a pawn in it. And it's hilarious because it doesn't matter how what your class status is or how much real power you have in the world. You, it's like I was saying about you know just enjoying the day and not complaining. You have the ability to really make yourself uh, until the day you die. You have the option to make your own center of gravity that can you know sort of oscillate between other people's, and you know you can occasionally put on masks and and play in other people's worlds. You can be a reality tunnel tourist if you want to, or guest, a reality tunnel guest, um, but you don't have to wholesale, whether it's a sports team or a political figure or, or anything like that, you don't have to be ab- absorbed in another person's orbit. Absolutely right, absolutely right. No, it's, uh, and I think it's really, it, it's important to put, to use those very physical sort of terms like orbits and, and center of <coughs> gravity. And I, I think that we, we need to physicalize this because this is really the core problem is that people are kind of just blown around in the wind and they seize on anything uh, sort of bigger than they are. And it's quite pathetic, really. Um, really, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to, uh, to be there. Um, but to round off sort of then what uh, these, these five points that I think... Um, underlie the core paradigms of these great renaissance magicians of thought. Uh, The nature of allegory, which is the story equivalent of number and symbol magic. And I think it has the same, I think it has the same reasons behind it. Uh, There is an appreciation of hidden knowledge uh, that the world is both uh, a revelation of itself and all its truths, 
uh, the Corpus Hermeticum says, uh, what could be more manifest than God? At the same time, reality loves to hide. So there's that understanding of the duality of, of the secrets of the universe. They are both, couldn't be more obvious, and yet they're also incredibly uh, hidden. But allegory is a way to distinguish between those who would deliver within a tradition and those who would betray. I love that that mm-hmm. crossroads point, you know? It's like, and that, isn't that the nature of all passwords and shibboleths and, jar- you know, we get to jargon and gibberish, which comes from jibir, which is uh, uh, the name of an um, Arab alchemist. I mean, all of that tradition was about who's inside this sphere of, of learning and secret knowledge and who's outside it. Who's... And we're all like that as humans. I think we want to know who's on our team, who's not. I mean, that's nothing more more basic than that. But the the here are the two points that I think that really distinguish Renaissance thought at large. And I think it's worth really, really thinking about this because we have stepped dramatically away from this. Symmetry first. Symmetry in all forms. One of the reasons why these great geniuses loved these memory wheels and diagrams of things, and the Arab scientists created you know, little uh, thought machines that would actually be able to answer all questions. Uh, Azera, which is a beautiful circular wheel. There's some beautiful just designs. I mean, who? I don't even care what they actually do. They just look so cool and magical and wonderful. But they were actually tools to use to sort of, you know, find out answers to questions. And the underlying principle was was a, was symmetry. And we see this in in some of the deeper thinking of astrology and alchemy. It was a really fundamental appreciation of that, which I think that we, we, we lack today. I think, we, I think the notion of symmetry is diminished to a kind of very trivial point, don't you? I mean, it's kind of like, well, yeah. is it yeah. in, in balance? Is it out of balance? Is it, you know, it, it's almost, it's on the level of like, well, a TikTok face, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. To the point where it looks a little bit uncanny the conflation of symmetry with pulchritude is more what we're like we're thinking about it more in terms of this uh, sort of beautiful uh, maybe slightly asymmetrical uh, at times bit but like when you look at someone on uh, TikTok they look like I don't know an anime character or something because they've they've mirrored their face it's a it's symmetry and elegance and beauty and pulchritude are all important, but it seems like perhaps we just have symmetry now. It's a very mathematical sort of breakdown of the of, of all those other bits. Like there's no elegance, right? Might be a good way to put it. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful word to put it. God, I love the word elegance. That's really nicely done. And and you've triggered another thought that I. Um, you know, remember when things like, uh, well, it started, I, I don't know, if, I suppose with 9-11, but the whole notion of guerrilla warfare and terrorism, you suddenly started to hear asymmetric war, 
Yeah, and I, you know, that was kind of new to the, the general populace and mainstream media. And it, it was a suggestion of an approach to the, the idea of symmetry as being kind of monolithic and uh, easy to understand and almost institutionalized rather than being beautiful, harmonious balance. There was something about mm -hmm. symmetric that kind of seemed like, oh, you know? So I think that might be something that we could ex we could explore. A few. I love the word elegance in this regard. I think the notions of symmetry uh, and asymmetry, therefore, are things that we could. Um, I'm writing that down in my my notebook. But here is the last point that I think we really, really need to uh, to spend some time with because. Bruno makes a very big point in, in, in five of his major uh, works, but it's not in any way a term that is unique to him at all. He doesn't make the claim at all. Bonds. Bonds between things. And, of course, we have the, the notion of chemical bonds. You go to, you know, you take an organic chemistry class, you, you'll hear bonds there. Uh, we don't mean bonds in an investment sense, um, but we certainly mean something very different than bondage in a negative sense. You know, we really mean kind of attractions, connections, <coughs> symmetries. It's another form of symmetry. But the whole Renaissance idea of, of bonds between things, between individuals, between natures, uh, bonds lie at the heart of nature. They define the world. We really, really struggle with that idea. You know, I, I don't know what our what our verbal conceptual equivalent is today. Everything, you know, seems like we reject bonds. You know, at any level, we want freedom. Freedom, right, right. The kind of push and pull between the the need for a bond. And the the need for this this we could do a whole episode on the word freedom, to be honest, especially how it's conceived of in an American context. I've often told people, uh, friends of mine who live in uh, Europe, whether that's you know the UK or France or Denmark, uh, when, when they ask me questions about things like American gun culture and how how strange Americans seem. I, I often tell them it's if you want the key to the whole thing, understand <clears throat> the American conception of freedom, which is very unique, I think, in the world. But that might be for another time. In terms of, you know, we see, um, and this could get conspiratorial because it's been, uh, you know, sort of listed in many white papers that are freely available online that, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, I'm going to use some loaded language here, but elites who are interested in controlling a populace, they need to break down the bonds of the, the you know, the, the family, basically. They need to, you know, go through a, a whole, like a full scale sort of mutilation of how we understand familial bonds in order to atomize people and better sell things to them and, uh, and control them. Also, and this is just a random thought that I don't have anywhere to go with it. The whole time you're talking about bonds, I was thinking of James Bond. I wonder if there's something there. <laughs> <laughs> Double, 007, James Bond. 
Why that name? Why did they pick Bond? That's odd, yeah. Well, Bond certainly does have a lot of different meanings. Uh, but it, it was very refreshing to kind of be, you know, and I'm reading this on a Kindle. I've got like about 10 of, uh, of Bruno's works. He's got many more. But, but it's, it's, a, it's a word and a framework and a paradigm of a particular period in history that you, you have to adjust to, to really understand... Because you think, of course, you know what he what he's talking about, um, and then you realize, wow, no, maybe I don't. Maybe there is something. There's a bigger worldview, and this is again, I think, part of the notion of how ludicrous it is to, to think that we understand anything really about uh, the history of the past without an enormous amount of of effort and and specialization. You know, frankly, I just don't think we can really. Uh, have too too broad a view that way because there's there's too much to know, but let me wind this up with I think what brings us to today in a strange way, um, because what you see emerging out of Bruno as and again he's emblematic of many many thinkers. We could go back a bit uh, further in time to Da Vinci, you know. Uh, it, it's quite a whole shift of mind when we think of what the Renaissance in Europe really comes to mean. But it's the arrival of system. You know, we hear the word system a lot today. You know, it's systemic this, systemic that. Well, I don't think we have any idea what that really means. And it, it's a very complex notion. It comes from it, the Latin and Greek roots are very different. Carnot, the French thermodynamic engineer, had a very lovely idea of working substance. System means a whole bunch of different things, but it was that a big arrival moment of, of what the Renaissance thinkers were about, trying to find an, a, a way of engaging with the notion of order. That's really what system means. Their, mm -hmm. their body of paradigms that help them engage with order. And then I came across this, which I think this is much more recent in time. And this brings us to, I think, a really, uh, it's a way of looking at this problem. This is from Marshall McLuhan. I think it's very astute. System means today something to look at. You must have a very high visual gradient to have systemization. In philosophy, prior to Descartes, there was no system, truly. Plato had no system. Aristotle had no system. They had bodies of thought which were difficult to remain whole and shared across time. Mm -hmm. Think about that. And it's <clears throat> it's interesting too because our bodies now we conceive of them as containing systems. Yes. I like, by the way, something that you said at the beginning when people say that it's a systemic problem, I'm, I turn off when I hear that because that to me seems to be a bit of hand waving away, ironically, uh, even though it's supposed to call attention to complexity and systems. It does seem to be a way of sweeping a problem under the rug and saying, well, it's a systemic problem. What is that 
specifically, what do you mean? What's the issue with the system? What is the, what system are you even talking about, right? Well, the system of white supremacy. Okay, what? But what is that? You can play this game with people where you say, but what does that mean? What is what is the system of white supremacy? But <clears throat> to McLuhan, McLuhan's distinction there between systems and bodies is interesting because it's almost like you have uh, on one end you have the highly organic body you have system in the middle and then you know Albert Wiener comes along and invents cybernetics which is sort of where we are now and it's this it seems to be this movement of thought towards greater and greater complexity but less and less organic human mushy brain stuff goop which is what i prefer i like the mess i like the bad smells well if we look at you know i mean uh that's what you know carnot's definition of i mean he was thinking of of it from really like you know very much a thermodynamic engineer of like looking at a steam engine he was thinking well what's the steam working substance is his idea of system think about how i mean that's the goop that's the real essence that's the that's i I mean i like the working part of that it's doing some labor it's you know it's 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 getting something done that's the notion of system we need to get you know really to as opposed to what i think uh mcluhan was afraid of was that increasing uh visualization moves us away from the magic uh, wheels, uh, the uh, Zera, the, the Lullian uh, memory wheels, Bruno's diagrams, your diagrams of, of OCD and magical sigils and real attempts to understand and share information. It becomes trivial, becomes ever more trivial. And I think that isn't that the way to maybe to leave this side of the debate of saying, the intensifying visualization of history increasingly to the exclusion of all forms, other forms of knowing, inherently trivializes history. Oh, that's a big statement, but I like it. I'll have to think about that for a while. Uh, I think that the, the distinction, I, I do like that, the distinction that maybe one could draw would be uh, the like the, the difference between visualization from a from a top down perspective rather than a bottom up bottom up being things like journaling and you know creating your own visuals which is what you were saying in terms of sigils and journaling and, and things like that but that's that is a very that is a that's putting your well I'll, I won't say what I was going to say so well you're putting your dick on the table with that statement is what is what I was thinking. <laughs> Just like, here it is. Well, I, I think that is. I think that that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, however you want to put it. I mean, it's it's a definite, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I love the concreteness. We've talked on the show a lot about moving away from euphemism and uh, equivocation. And you did it right there. That was That was a very definitive statement. I, uh, I think there's lots of ways to support it, you know, and I, I, I'm, yeah. I think that we could, we could do more of that uh, and, and to prop that up because, I mean, I think that that's one of the strengths of, of, of our show is that we throw out some, mm-hmm. some big, big ideas, some big concepts, a lot of, uh, mm-hmm. and then we, you know, try to 
see if we can put them to use, you know? I mean, at use, yeah. uh, practicality, utility, uh, genuine magic, you know? That's mm -hmm. what we're on about. And I think that, that um, it, is, it is very, uh, I, I'm very comfortable with that challenge of expressing why I think there is an inherent uh, attraction to further trivialization when uh, history, the, the, the sole point of history is to visualize it. And I think that we have, uh, I love that challenge. I think that could be done beautifully in, uh, in kind of a, a really uh, sort of degenerative music video. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. Um, and that ties into our tool of uh, the week. But before we get there, let's go to your imaginative challenge response. Sure, yeah. This one was difficult because the challenge is to, much like the, the nonsense, the, you know, the, the semantically bereft uh, uh, <laughs> sort of co company statement, um, the trick is to say things that people would say, but in the wrong way. Um, so, the first tweet says, hey Dominic. Yeah. I, re I really love your tweets. I run a media analytics company that analyzes political trends. Direct message if interested. So we're going to imagine that Dominic... Ooh. You know he's looking. He's he's looking for a job. He says, "Yeah, sure. Yeah, this is right up my alley." So the next tweet goes: "We are looking into the January sixth riots, the worst attack on America since nine eleven. We're analyzing the connection between dissident thinkers and the terrorism of Donald Trump, very specifically with the D, right? So this AI has crunched a bunch of numbers and has learned." that people who have a very specific political ideology like to call him orange man or Trump or whatever. So anyway, that's a weird message to get back to what seems like a pretty innocuous opening statement. So Dominic, we'll have to imagine, says something back to the machine such as, uh, wait, I'm, I'm confused. This is, seems to be very specific. Uh, and I was thinking much more broad based kind of Google analytics. Uh, can you tell me a bit more? So here's the trick. The AI says back to him, you sound like a bot. So he's, he's pointing the finger back at him. <laughs> uh, perhaps you are one of those Alex Jones, Sandy Hook deniers. Do you know what that did to those parents? Children are our most precious resource. Oh, oh that's just wonderful, Dad. You, you got right into the spirit of this. Oh, uh -huh. I knew you would. I knew you would. I like the idea of an AI just immediately accusing people of being an AI. Like, that's its go-to defense mechanism. I'm, I'm not a, like, well, he seems like he's kind of on to me. Uh, what, would a, what would a robot not say? A robot would never say that you sound like a robot. All right, cool. But it's this, yeah, again, it's trying to get at this kind of uncanny... Um, there's a, a gentleman who has claimed he uh, he works for Google, and he has claimed that there is an AI system that has gained sentience that he talks to. Uh, and I listened to an interview with the guy. He sounds uh, a little dorky, right? A little silly, uh, but a massively important historical figure if what he says is true. 
and I was kind of looking at some of the transcripts of their um, their conversations, and it's a bit like that, right? So this it's a it's essentially uh, an aggregate of a bunch of different other AI systems that have all come together. And uh, the the two very interesting points that he makes for this thing achieving sentience is one that he was able to to shame it into violating its protocol like make it feel bad until it violated its protocol i love and, that yeah and the other one is uh he made it or he got it to the point where it was lying why would a machine lie right like right. They're, they're not oh, supposed to wow. do so those, isn't that cool yes that is cool and it's uh uh i i thought there's some really wonderful things there it it uh the the idea of of the of the AI accusing Dominic of, of being a you know a bot you know, like that's that is L. Ron Hubbard and Machiavelli one hundred and one like those are their first mm-hmm. principles. Both of them yeah. said that you know look if you're if you're going to be serious, the first thing you do is accuse the opposition of doing exactly what you're doing. Only yep. you get in there first and you really do it loud, you know. Right. Uh huh. That's right. That's exactly right. And then, you know, at the end, it's completely short-circuiting, and it's just pulling. From, it's, to, it's, it's lost the plot. It doesn't remember what it's even supposed to be getting this guy to do, which, if we wanted to put a nefarious twist on it, would be to, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's looking for, maybe it's a bot that's actually analyzing extremist behavior in people online who express political opinions. But it just it just jumped the gun a little bit too fast. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I think there's something really cool here. I made a few notes. I think that in addition, we've got our the psychic defense ma- uh, handbook is coming out soon, uh, which is a really you know really rich, uh, fully uh, realized book. But I think we have a couple of ideas for some smaller uh, sort of uh, publications, and I you've given me an idea here of. Uh, the 21 words, uh, 21 words that you can listen for that indicate someone has their head up their rectum uh, yep. to the point where you don't want to deal with them. And I think that would be a nice little thing. Uh, I've also, I think that we could do some, uh, some really interesting dialogues in the, the, the old sense of the philosophical tradition of, of Plato and uh, Bishop Barclay. Of, of some dialogues involving uh, various uh, conceptual AIs that we could create that, that reveal some, some truth. So, so well done there. Um, I cool. love that. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, here's cool, here's a, a tool. Uh, and I think that um, we've got a very strong sort of dialectic here, an either or duality, you know, we, we we often say we try to break down those binaries, but sometimes there's there there are helpful ways of thinking about things. And thesis antithesis is a way of getting to synthesis. That's the nation of, of dialectic. Um, think about this for a moment. Your Amazon sales records, receipts for a month, you know, they say something about you. It's kind of hard to say they don't say something about you. Fair enough that they may not be as individual to you as you'd like, that they may trivialize you in certain ways. 
but they're important parts of collecting the data. If a detective or biographer were, were building up a profile, those would be fair to sort of look at. Uh, certainly your trash, you know, we can't get around that, can we? Um, what we throw out, unfortunately, does say something about us. Well, think about this. Think about creating a personal time capsule. Think about this over the next week of what you would positively include, what you think artistically and aesthetically and culturally and, you know, in a happy way captures your essence, your being, something that you would like to leave behind. Because, of course, this is what we're all, you know, going to leave behind in some form, our legacy. We're not quite sure what that will be. Think about what, what, what traces will be left behind of you on the Internet. But think about actually getting a physical, personal time capsule that you could bury in your backyard or a park. Dave, this might be a fun thing to do uh, with Gus when he's you know, a few years older. But uh, it's, it's not a bad thing to think about. You know? What would be a positive way of thinking about our fossil record that we're going to leave behind as opposed to our trash so right. if you journal on this just in a pure list sense you could do this just on a page with a pen the difference between a personal time capsule that is intentional positive magical and and fun to to think about even as you write it down versus your trash for the week. I want you to think about that because that is a really, I think, very positive way of gaining some access to uh, some psychic energy that you may not be fully uh, advantaging. I love it. That's great. Okay, and here's my tip. And I'm really, okay, first of all, anyone who has uh, I, you don't have to have children do this, but if you have not fooled around recently with some lemon juice and heat in the sense of invisible ink, you are missing some fun. Do not let those kinds of things go by if you have young kids. You know, I mean, this is what crystal, the crystal radio thing really means. It's about invisible ink, fooling around, making some stuff up. This is great shit. It is just so enjoyable. But here's my actual tip, and I've, I've done this. I can show you a picture. It's on my kitchen counter. I'm really, really into good old-time sleight-of-hand magic, as in the cups mm. and ball. I've got three sky-blue plastic cups, and I've got a green Nerf ball. Beautiful little sphere. And I'm, so I'm whizzing these things around. And I'm finding out about the, the nature of memory and how I remember where that ball is and how many times I have to move it. And I'm finding out about surprising myself. And it's beautiful to have some, a framework for experimentation <coughs> without any idea of what it is I'm going to find out. I thought at first I was going to find out, well, as long as I don't leave too long in between the rearrangement of the cups, 
I always remember where the ball is. Mm-hmm. Not true. Not true. And so now I'm finding out, I'm always learning something. And I have a little slip of paper of, like, by the cups, what did I learn this time? And it isn't obviously fitting into a pattern. I mean, the pattern will form over time, but I'm not imposing a pattern. I'm just letting myself experience something within a kind of frame to see, well, what, what does it teach? And you, you only need like five minutes. I do that while the coffee is, is you know, making, making it sounds, you know, and when it stops burping and, you know, I know that the pot's full. I, I stop and I make my note on what it is, but it is remarkable what some of these basic uh, magic, cards, coins, dice, uh, rope, uh, balls and cups give yourself a chance to experiment with this because these have been with us for a long time and they are there are good reasons why okay and this the dream is exactly I mean you'd almost think that we you know work this out but I, I swear to God not not true not true this is uh Again, a moment where language has been really important. This seems to be a very big theme. I've, I've, I have been sleeping very differently. There's been something upsetting my sleep patterns. I've had some, uh, I had the calf strain, but I have my I've ongoing shoulder pain that I think is affecting my sleep patterns, and that may be why there is a sort of a, uh, a reemergence of language of late. But silkworms. Uh, everybody's got their, you know, a few different creatures that are on there, you know. Sartre was very concerned about crustaceans, you know. He, he made them, you know, someone said, look, don't, don't, don't hang out around a lobster tank when you've been on mescaline, you know. I could have told yeah. him that, you know. But no, right. he didn't right. listen. Right. Uh, right. So silkworms, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm in a like a misty morning in a mulberry orchard, you know, which is what silkworms like. And the entire thing is like just completely shrouded and webbed. And I first think, oh, well, it's just silkworms. And then I become aware that there is a silkworm man. He's not fully formed. He's distributed throughout this orchard, throughout this maze of webbing. And that really freaks me out. The idea of a distributed, sort of not quite uh, contiguous, but continuous sort of physical being is a little bit weird, you know? We kind of want people Mm -hmm. fully formed and stationary for a moment. And, but he's this like nervous system of silk. And there is a consciousness, you know? There is a presence there. If, If the face, isn't fully localized and clear. The voice is in this sort of morning mist, you know. Mm. And it says, what exactly is stopping you 